0: Thank you all for joining us. Once again, I'm Randall Foster. I am Chief Creative Officer of Symphonic, and you are here on the Music Industry 360 podcast. We are joined today by veteran music industry professional and president of the Music Business Association, Portia Sabin. I I better correct myself. Dr. Portia Sabin.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Randall. I am going to insist on that from now on. Doctor is, uh, you know, I worked hard for that. So uh, I'm going to insist that you use that for from now on,
0: Doctor. You earned that title, and and I, I know from as many friends as I've had in academia that that once you get that title, that's like the gold medal. You 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 need to hang on to that with white knuckles. It's so interesting that a doctor of anthropology and education from Columbia University, one of the obviously one of the most esteemed schools in, in America, but possibly the world, if you if you get real about it made her way into the music business. I, I, I find it really fascinating because it's, I feel like it might be a path less traveled. Um, So so I'm curious, I I would love to just talk about your, your progression from um, your early days in New York, you know, as a drummer and, and in that scene and how you found your way to where you are today. So let's start at the very, very beginning. Um, So you, Where did you grow up? I apologize. That's the one bit of the bio I didn't have.
1: I grew up in New York City in Manhattan uh, on the uh, in Hell's Kitchen, which is the mid mid uh, 40s and 50s on the west side over by the river um, when it was still a neighborhood that was run by the Irish mafia who were called the Westies. And I did pretty well growing up there because I was a little redheaded girl. So of course they all, you know, all the guys would come out of the bars in the morning and say top of the morning to you, sweetheart, that sort of thing. So uh, it was, it was a pleasant, charming neighborhood when I grew up, not a, not a rich neighborhood. You know, the the buildings over on on 9th and 10th Avenues in Manhattan were built in the 1800s for those big immigrant families. And generally, most of the apartment buildings there had uh, one bathroom in the hallway that was shared by all the apartments. We were lucky, my mother and I, to grow up in an apartment with the bathroom inside our apartment. And yet you could, in our bathroom, you could sit on the toilet and wash your hands
0: in the sink. Well, so it was that, that small. That seemed like it was inside the apartment so <laughs> I felt good about that. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I I'm learning a lot about you. I, I feel like I know you pretty okay, but but I'm, I'm feeling I'm going to learn a lot about you today. So this is this is fun for me. The um so in your early days like you 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 are a percussionist drummer, you started out in in the rock scene in Manhattan. Um, how did, how, what motivated you to get involved in music and, and how did, how did you get into that scene?
1: Well, um, I'm one of those people who was a, an early music fan. So I was about 10 when I started getting really into music on the radio, I bought my first vinyl record at 10. It was, um, Jay Giles' band Freeze Frame. <laughs> yes, I'm very proud. Uh, and then I just became, you know, one of those people who in junior high school and high school was all about the music. I was the kind of person who like, I wouldn't talk to you if you didn't like the right kind of band. Um, you know, all my friends liked the Smiths and I wasn't going to talk to you if you weren't, (laughs) if you didn't see the merits of the Smiths. Um, you know, my whole life was really built around, uh, music. Um, that was my big identity point in high school, Um, Also in high school, I decided that I also wanted to be a musician because I thought there was the best way to meet cute boy musicians was probably to be in a band rather than to be a groupie. That didn't seem like an interesting path for me. So I picked up the electric bass at age 14 and was a little disappointed to discover that all of the boys had picked up their instruments at 12. So by 14, they were all good at them and I was still crappy. Um, and this was the 80s, so it was a little different then. Um, it was a little bit harder. People, you know, the guys that I knew were like in police cover bands. So they clearly didn't want a bass player who couldn't <laughs> play a police riff, you know. It wasn't um It wasn't good. So I didn't get into a band until I got to college. But then the minute I got into college, I started playing in bands as a bass player. And I played bass through bands all through my first three years of college. And then my senior year, I actually showed up at a new band practice. And my friend Tamara was sitting behind the drums. And it was like something happened in my brain. And I just said to her, I was like, do you know how to play drums? And she's like, no, but there's a drum room here on campus and you can take lessons. And it's a hundred dollars for the whole semester. And I literally like ran out of that band practice, ran to the drum room, like put down my hundred dollars. I was like, when can I start? It's like it just was something clicked. And I took one drum lesson, very proud, one drum lesson, and the very next day I got into a Pixies cover band, which shows <laughs> you how far the boys had come, because I was in a Pixies cover band then after one drum lesson with four other with four dudes who were the kindest boys (laughs) because they put up with, I mean, I couldn't play at all, you know, it was real bad. And David Lovering is one of my favorite drummers. So, you know, I was butchering his, his work. Completely, but it was like it was like a disease. Like I, I was just completely hooked. I never wanted to do anything but play drums, and so I didn't. Um, I played drums all through that year, and then I was in a band. At the end of that year, that band, when we graduated, we moved to Minneapolis to make it in the music business, which we totally didn't do. But we did play out a lot in Minneapolis. You know, I got to play Uptown. I got to play First Avenue um you know i the 7th street entry obviously not the main stage um but you know that was historic and exciting cuz you know who's for and the replacements and you know i i met um the drummer for babes in toyland on a, a porch at somebody's party one time and i couldn't even talk to her cuz i was so like incredibly starstruck so you know i lived in minneapolis for about a year and played in a bunch of different bands and then um, when I went home to New York, I, Minneapolis and I were not a fit. I, I don't go for the like sixty below. And then they also don't tell you that you know when it's not sixty below there, it's like super hot and there's mosquitoes the size of your head. So it's like none none of the seasons of Minneapolis work for me. So I was I was like I called my mom and I was like, can I just come home? And she was like, yeah, you can come home. What the hell. So I went back to New York and the very first thing I did when I got back to New York was I opened the village voice. This is the days before the internet. And I went through the classified ads and I found a band looking for a drummer. It happened to be an all female band. And I was like, well, I've never done that before. Let's try that. So I got into a band and literally three days after I got back to New York and I played in bands for 10 years for the next 10 years in New York. Um, now my the the secret of my phd is that you know a couple months after i got back to new york and was playing in this band um i realized i had to do something with my life that wasn't this uh, or else my mother was gonna be like really mad that she'd spent all this money on you know a nice liberal arts college and all of the all of the above so um so i actually enrolled in grad school largely just to make my mother happy um, I was I was always interested in anthropology. I had part of my major in, in college was anthropology, so you know I was interested. But it, it was I would say sixty percent just to kind of keep my mom off my back. <laughs> <laughs> um, PhD by necessity. <laughs> for PhD by necessity exactly. And I, you know I could have dropped out at any point, but I really ended up loving it, and and so I, I went for the whole time. So during that time, I, you know, after first few years, uh, I ended up getting into a band that was kind of serious. We were called the Hissy Fits, um, and we ended up making a couple of records. We went on tour. We ended up, you know, sort of moving up the food chain a little bit and became a little bit known in New York. We had a song that was played on alternative radio, and you know, it just it it was a little bit of a, you know, it's, we started to get some of that momentum and heat. Um, And then when we broke up, I decided to take that little piece of knowledge that I had gained, which I felt made me dangerous, um, and start managing some other bands. So when I left the Hissy Fits, I started managing bands and I started my own management company and I managed bands for about 10 years. And that was uh, how I ended up managing a band called The Gossip. Um, The Gossip ended up going gold in the UK. Um, So we had a big adventure with that. I signed them to Sony uh, for... A label deal in chrysalis for publishing um and that was you know that was an exciting period of my life and i learned a lot about how the music industry works <laughs> and doesn't work um i was gonna that. add that actually
0: I, I i imagine you 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 gained another phd in that process of sorts
1: yeah it ended up being being pretty crazy and then um i'm kind of skipping ahead so
0: if you want to stop me at some point. No, I'm, I'm, you've, you've got me. I'm riveted at this point. (laughs) Okay.
1: So um, in the meantime, I had met a boy uh, named Slim Moon, which is a hard name to forget um, who ran a record label called Kill Rock Stars. And I was a huge fan of Kill Rock Stars. I actually met him at a Slater Kinney show. Slater Kinney at the time was my favorite band and my, my band, the Hissy Fits had gone to see Slater Kinney and we were, um, Slim was there to see the band because obviously they were the hottest band on his label at that moment. Um, and so we were introduced by a mutual friend. And so that is how we met. And we are celebrating our 22nd anniversary on the 19th of this month. So that's my wedding anniversary. May 19th, really? Yes.
0: Yes. Greatness. No way. Greatness. That's awesome. That's, that's so, a so quick question. When you met Slim, did you know Slim was the founder of Kill Rock Stars, or was he just a cute boy and it was an extra perk that he was the founder of your favorite label?
1: No, actually, I knew who he was, but the funny thing is, I would only have known who he was via like liner notes because Slim Moon is kind of a memorable name, and I remember like when I would read the Slater Kinney liner notes, it would say "Thanks, Slim Moon," and I was like, "What? That what a crazy name!" In fact, I remember having a conversation with my boyfriend about the name Slim Moon when I was listening to a Slater Kinney. It record. sounds anyway.
0: a bit like a pseudonym, doesn't it? I mean, I like, know, right? It's, it's like there,
1: nobody name. could be named Slim Moon. Like, what is his real name? That is bizarre. So. um so I had known, like I had known the name, but then here's the crazy part. So this guy who was our mutual friend who introduced us, he is a total, I can curse on this podcast, right? Uh, I, I encourage it. Okay, a total shit talker, right? And he was shit talking Slim and Slim was staying at his house. So even though he like, was like, oh, he's my best friend, he was telling me all this stuff about him. And like one of the things he'd said is he's like slim is the dirtiest person i've ever met he smells he's gross he's really disgusting so like i had heard this story so when i got introduced at the show like i was like like i, I was trying to figure out what i was like is this the guy like he seems really normal so that was like initially kind of interesting because i was like what, you know, am I going to find something out about him that's like, he's really, you just going to like, like pig pen, like bugs are going to jump off of him or something it's completely normal. T-shirt, jeans, baseball cap.
0: Smelling good is not punk rock. That's, 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 that's not. Clearly
1: not. Yeah. It's not usually very punk. And honestly, like having been married to him for 22 years, like he's not the cleanest person I've ever met And my life, but, but he's not like the image that I had in my head was not (laughs) reality.
0: That's crazy. So I want to stop you at kill rock stars. Let's talk about that a little bit because, um, I of course came up and, and, you know, as, as a fan of great music and, and knew the label before I knew you and was was thrilled to meet you through a two IM and some of the other great organizations that you and I have been involved with, um, over the last number of years, but you guys had a, an incredible run there. The, um, you know, so you know, obviously you you met Slim, you you married him. Um, at what point did you transition into Kill Rock Stars, and at what point did you transition into the leadership role at Kill Rock Stars?
1: So um, I met Slim the. That show that Slater Kinney show was, I think the all hands on the bad one tour, it was May of 2000. So um, we started dating, we did a long distance dating thing took forever. I ended up moving out to the West Coast. Um, We got married in 2004 on the day that I graduated with my PhD. So just a nice way to keep that date in our heads. We figured that would be helpful. So now my graduation day is our wedding anniversary, uh, May 19th. So, um, so then after we got married and I finished my dissertation and actually, you know, graduated, I got a postdoctoral fellowship and I, I was actually, I got a postdoctoral fellowship at the university of Washington, which was interesting because Slim lived in Olympia, Washington. And so now I got this job in Seattle. So I was like, oh, I'll move out to the West coast, live with Slim. And we and I will commute to Seattle, which was really stupid, because if anyone who's ever lived out there, Olympia to Seattle on a good day with no traffic is like an hour (laughs) on a bad day with traffic. It's it could be like your whole day. So I ended up actually having to get an apartment in Seattle for a while while I did this postdoc. Now, in the meantime, I had started to manage the gossip and the gossip had started to blow up and go uh, get really big in in England. So the years of my postdoc were um, 2006, 2005 and 2006. And during 2006, I was like flying to England from Seattle like once a month and also trying to commute to Olympia. It was bananas. It, It really had gotten pretty crazy. And then in like April of 2006, like at the height of everything crazy, Slim, I came home one day and Slim was like, you know, I think I wanna do something different. I've been running this label for 15 years. I think I wanna apply for this A&R job at Nunsuch. And if we get it, we should move to New York. And I was like, uh, okay, like go for it. If you wanna do that. Well, he applied and he got the job. So now suddenly he's gonna be an A&R guy at Nunsuch. We're gonna to move to New York. And I was like, what are you gonna do with the label? And he's like, well, I was thinking about that. Do you wanna take it over and you can shut it down? And I was like, what? And then I, I guess, I, you know, he, I, w- I went away and thought about it. And I was like, well, this is sort of my opportunity, right? Like I've spent the last two, one foot in music and one foot in academia. I knew by then that I didn't want to be a professor. That just wasn't. I love teaching, but I, that wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and this this job that I had at the University of Washington was a research job, which I was really hating for reasons that, you know, are a different podcast. Did not like that job. So I was basically being offered the opportunity to move full time into music and be able to, you know, really devote all my time to my management clients and, you know, run this label and shut it down. I was like, okay. So I decided to do it. So I took over kill rock stars. We moved to New York city the same month. So now I don't even have a staff. Like my staff is all back in Olympia. I'm in New York and slim had a lineup of 27 records that were supposed to come out in 2007. So 2007 was the year the gossip went gold in the UK. So I actually spent a lot more time in Europe uh, in 2007, and my staff, who were wonderful, just put out the 27 records. But during that year, I ended up signing a band called Horse Feathers. I signed The Thermals. I signed Tau, uh, who at the time was Tau with the Get Down, Stay Down, is now just Tau. Um, and I was like, oh, this is fun. This is easy. I love this. I'm just going to keep doing this. So I never did shut down the label. And I just kept going.
0: And I ran it for 13 years. That's incredible. And of course, being on being in New York, then that, that commute to the UK was much easier.
1: <laughs> yeah, honestly, that really helped. <laughs> I, I,
0: I can only imagine. See, I didn't know you were a manager. And it's interesting to see that transition from management to label. Um, and and uh, uh, I may be just a little misinformed with regards to independent labels, but a slate of 27 releases in one year, that seems really aggressive. It was, was the label always that aggressive as far as the number of releases?
1: Slim on the Enneagram is um, a type seven, which is the enthusiast. <laughs> so uh, we always <laughs> point to that. He always had an incredibly aggressive release schedule. And I think it's largely because Because he just would always get excited about a new band and then just have trouble saying no. When I ran the label, I got to say I was much more uh, cautious, especially, you know, the other thing I always say about Slim is that he's a visionary. And I think he saw the writing on the wall a little bit about the the big revolution that was going to come, the end of physical and the beginning beginning of digital. Um, so I really feel like he kind of got out of the business right in time, but I had to preside over the label during that transition. And
0: that well, was that, really, really tough. And that was 2007. That was when Tower went down. I mean, I, I remember, I remember that almost like a, like my parents talk about like the day JFK was shot. Like I, yeah. I in my oh, yeah. lifetime, in my professional career, the day Tower filed for bankruptcy is one of those zeitgeist moments for me. It absolutely is.
1: It absolutely is. And, you know, Ooh. as a label like uh, like Co-Rockstars, uh, we were lucky because we had Elliott Smith, we had Slater Kinney, we had the Decemberists, So we had some catalog to carry us through the tough times. But that said, you know, the closing of Tower, the, the collapse of retail, and then that um, weird moment between when, you know, that happened and then when digital really kicked into being was super tough as you, as you well know, you know, I, I think the year 2010, we put out one record because I had to just use all my money to keep my staff paid. You know, I, I just didn't, I had to keep the doors open. I just couldn't afford to put anything out. So it was, it was a tough time, but you know, we weathered it, we got through it. Um, We decided to start putting out alternative comedy albums and that turned out to be a huge lifesaver as well as really great. And I'm some of my favorite albums that we ever put out. Um,
0: was that a, was that about the time that you were named one of the top one thousand comics in the world? Y- by yeah, S3? yeah. Which I'll never
1: understand that, but... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, okay. I mean, you are you're, you're on a list. I, I know I'm on a list. I'm like, well, I think I'm funny, but I don't think anyone else
0: knows I'm funny. So that's just a. Totally right. Totally so, weird. So the collapse of digital um, and your resilience through it actually dovetails really nice into into what would become your your next act professionally. I think in that I remember, and you may you may correct me here, but I, as far as I understand it, the Music Business Association is the newest iteration of what was formerly known and loved as Narm. Is that is that a correct uh, assertion? Yeah, that's completely correct. Because I I do remember NARM. I remember the NARM conventions, which, for those listeners that weren't paying attention at that time, that was basically when the labels would go with their next two or three quarters worth of priorities and pitch them to the retailers. So, Borders and Barnes and Noble and Tower and Virgin and all those, all the reps from those stores would walk around this convention. And so, when that physical stuff went away, all of a sudden we were left with this incredible business that has intricate needs and it has all sorts of, you know, growth objectives, et cetera. Um, but without the major, one of the major platforms we were selling on. So I, I'm sure you, you can speak to the, the convergence from NARM into, to music biz, because I'm sure you were at least tangentially involved with that. W- were you not? I mean, I know you weren't yet at the organization, but were you involved in, in some of those discussions?
1: Um, no, I, I don't think I was ve- very involved. I mean, the funny thing about music biz is that when NARM stopped being NARM, because I went to NARM as when I ran Kill Stars, but uh, a few times, um, but then when it went away and it, and they rebranded as music biz, I had no idea that that had happened. That was completely outside my purview. And in fact, it was years after, uh, that someone said to me you know, are you going to music biz this year? And I was like, what the hell is music biz? And, you know, I had to be instructed because I went, I had to go to the website and look it up. And I was like, oh my God, this conference is amazing. Look at all these people talking about all this stuff that I care about. I think, um, Randall, the reason, like what happened to sort of get me from the label world to here is I started working on boards. So um, I got I actually, Slim had been a founding member of A2IM, which is the Independent Label Trade Association. And when he left Kill Rockstars, I inherited his seat. And I, I so I sat in his seat for like six months and then um, they had an election and I got elected on my own uh, recognizance or whatever <laughs> merit. I got elected on my own merit. And then I ended up serving on that board for 12 years, for the next 12 years. Um, and I did things at A2IM, like start the libera awards which is their awards show they didn't have an award show they wanted to do an award show and i said how hard can it be to throw an award show i'll do that it was hard let me tell you i was (laughs) i was i uh, i learned a lot um but i so i was on the board of hym for 12 years i was asked to be on the board of the RIAA. I was on that board for two years um i was on the recording academy board of governors for about six or seven years um and I just started to get excited about the business of music. You know, I always say that I'm a music fan who turned into a music business fan. You know, I really got excited about the workings of the industry. And uh, around 2014, I actually started a podcast, which I felt at the time was I was really late to the game, which is now hilarious to think about because now I, it seems like I'm this OG podcaster. Um, so I've been doing a podcast since you know officially the beginning of 2015 about the music business called The Future of What. And so I also started meeting a lot of people through the podcast, you know, talking to people on the podcast executives throughout the industry about all sorts of stuff, you know, up and coming tech stuff, issues, you know, legislation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just really got interested in, in the issues and the business itself. And so when this music biz job came available in 2019, um, they just called me out of the blue, a headhunter called me. And I think it was because they'd been recommended, you know, I'd been recommended by somebody that they knew um, as someone who sort of had their finger on what was going on in the music industry. So for me, this music, biz job is really kind of a perfect fit um, because what music biz has become is, you know, when it was NARM, it represented, you know, the, the labels and the retailers and the distributors and someone I was talking to the other day, just said this in such an interesting manner you know, one of the biggest revolutions in the digital age has been that the major labels no longer control the means of distribution, which really is a big deal if you think about it. Um, because if you think about it, you know, the, the majors controlled, they owned the distributors, the distributors and the retailers and the, you know, labels were all sort of one, uh, Mm-hmm. unit. And the indie, you know, the indie world, obviously we had connections, we could get into that world, which was great, but you know, they did control the means of distribution. Now the means of distribution is, you know, Spotify, SoundCloud, um, you know, it's other companies um, that are outside the major label system. So what music Biz did, which was brilliant after they rebranded was to invite in those other companies that are now the means of distribution in the industry. So On our board now, we have, you know, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, um, we have Pandora, uh, you know, and a bunch of different companies. In the last few years, since I've been there, we've added a ton um, because we're really trying to capture all sectors of the industry. So it, it puts music Biz in an interesting position in the industry because we represent both the copyright owners and the copyright users. So we try to be kind of a Switzerland where everybody can talk about upcoming issues things are affecting everyone but we're not
0: you know we're not throwing tomatoes at each other on capitol hill you're the great peacekeepers. The um, well, and those, those DSPs that are all involved. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, I, and I know we are in the shadow of the upcoming, impending, music biz conference hosted here in Nashville annually. Getting back to work, um, which is I'm so excited for your conference. Um, but but the informative sessions and things that I've had the pleasure of being in the room for there are are really 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 game changing and and getting those thought leaders all in one room and having you know it, we're in a time where the the mechanisms and the and the gatekeepers that we that we're concerned with now are the editors and the in the and, the, and the, really the algorithms at, at these at the DSPs having them talk to us about best practices and things I think is really a gift just having that ability because otherwise it's it's hard to navigate this space you know yeah Absolutely. And it's, it's critical
1: that we all work together. I think that's sort of, you know, I think that's sort of the bottom line is, you know, there's always going to be areas in which people have um, differing opinions or are like outright against each other, you know, this side wants this and this side wants that. But at the end of the day, I think it's um, much more fruitful for us to try to work together. And that's one thing, you know, we're a trade association and I don't know if, you know, your listeners are familiar with what a trade association does, but, you know, one of the things trade associations do for their membership is advocate. So like an organization like the RIAA, you know, they are very well equipped to advocate for the major label industry, right? So they have a bunch of lobbyists, you know, their, um, their leadership is mostly lawyers, you know, former lawyers, they, they just, you know, they're very much set up for that advocacy piece, Um, And we're really not like, that is not something that I see music biz. That's not a direction I see music biz going in is the advocacy direction necessarily, because I just don't think, I I don't think that's where, um, you know, I I don't think that's what we're organized to do. Cause I think that other people have, you know, the DSPs have DEMA, you know, everybody's sort of got their own little trade association that can advocate for them on Capitol Hill. Um, One thing I'll say to that, which is totally unrelated, but that I have, been a big champion of for a really long time is I honestly believe that if we want change in the music industry and we want, you know, artists compensated properly and, and, you know, to be able to continue being artists, which I, I really do believe everyone in the industry does want, um, because without artists, you know, what everyone always says here in Nashville, they say it all starts with a song, right? Like if there's no artists to write songs, then, you know, everything we're doing is fruitless and futile. Um, you know, I think what we lack right now in the American landscape is a strong artist's rights organization. You know, we really need that. I think we need a trade association that's for artists and that artists can utilize on their own behalf to lobby for their own, um, interests.
0: No, absolutely. And and, I mean, to a certain degree, I think the American Federation of Musicians has tried to do that at least, at least for the performing musicians and sessions. But, um, but no, I think that would be a, a fantastic idea. Um, you know, so would you say like the primary, really the primary goal of what you guys are doing is really the education outreach connection side of things over, obviously over the advocacy to Capitol Hill. That's really the goals of Music Biz or, or I'm sure you have a mission statement that I probably should have read before this <laughs> call. But what, how would you distill those goals?
1: Yeah, I think our goal is to... Uh create the rooms in which the important conversations happen. That's really, that's really what we do, you know, because we believe that everyone is going to be stronger when they talk to each other and listen to each other. So that's what we have tried to do throughout the pandemic. We were able to pivot. We put on over 70 virtual events. um, Absolutely. With the goal of educating the community providing information you know we worked with you know all sorts of organizations you know we did um a music biz live we did this music biz live weekly series as throughout the pandemic and like one episode was with music cares to talk about how artists could and other people in the industry could apply for uh, money for support through music cares um, we did one on mental health how people could get mental health during the pandemic um we talked to Neva when that organization, uh, the Venue Trade Association, which is brand new, which was created during the pandemic, you know, to talk about how folks could get help through that. We had you know lawyers and business managers on to talk about how do you apply for an SBA loan, um, you know. So a lot of our mission is that sort of educational piece and and letting people know what's out there. I think there's another piece to the education part which is also just generally understanding the music business. I've been a big advocate for, for that. Like I, I started my podcast with really that in mind, you know, if artists are going to listen to this, I thought like, let's give them the information that they need to be successful in this industry. You know, cause I still feel I, I when I came out of my 13 years of, of running a label with was that artists need this information to do well. And sometimes they just don't know it. So you need to give it to them. Sometimes you need to give it to them seven times. You know, so that they can get it. I mean, I think someone had to explain publishing to me at least three times before it sank in. And I have a PhD, so you know, publishing is ex- extremely complicated. Um, but also, you know, there's like a weird sort of willfulness sometimes to some artists where they just don't want to know. They want, you know, they're like, "Oh, I'm an artist. I just want to think about artistic things." And and I really want to try to. Get people to understand you need to know this. Like, you're not going to be successful in this industry if you don't understand your own business, because this is a business, you know, at the end of the day. And we don't need any more stories about artists that were taken advantage of by people in their lives because they didn't care enough to pay attention to the money, you know. And today it's so much harder because, you know, back in the day, it was really you had two income streams as an artist, right? Touring and record sales. And now you've got a thousand income streams. So, it's just, it's just a different world and you really need to be on top of it.
0: No, I think that's absolutely right. I, I I encounter artists all the time who are not the best stewards of their own business mm-hmm. and and the reality is we all have those cautionary tales um you know we've 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 all heard the horror stories and, and a lot of those horror stories are still being unpacked right now with rights revisions and everything else that's going on and, and it's the news is i feel like we are making progress as an industry i feel like we're the altruistic goals of of doing good in music are 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 slowly coming true in many ways i think um, the I was going to ask you, and I, I'm trying to, we're, we're running out of time, but I've got a couple last things I want to ask you that are just eating me up. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to ask this of every person I interview in this interview. Um, series for this podcast and that is uh, this is a small question with a long answer possibly and it might be a might be a follow-up podcast at some point about this question alone what do you think the biggest challenge is facing the industry overarching in 2022 and how do we overcome it
1: you know i I'm sure you'd agree. There's a lot of issues that I think are important. Um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion is always going to be at the top of my list because we have a duty as an industry to lead the way. You know, we have so many artists of color, so many um, queer artists, you know, trans artists, uh, female artists, even if we're going to get right down to it. Um, We need to always keep that at the front of our minds because, you know, the diversity of our artist community is not reflected in our executive community as well as it should be. And so that I think always has to be at the forefront of our minds for whatever we do. Um, The second biggest topic is probably like a perennial topic for the music industry, but it's really true today too, which is don't let tech leave us in the dust because tech moves so fast and we have habitually in the music industry been left behind and had to play catch up. You know, the whole mess of Napster and then the ensuing 20 plus years where, you know, we couldn't get it together to figure out how, you know, it's like oh, they'll never sell, we'll never sell music on a digital file. You know, there <laughs> a lot of pain could have been avoided if we had it sort of got with that program earlier. Um, and right now, you know, I feel like NFTs are a big one. It's like pe- we're, we're going to do a big track at Music Biz on NFTs. And I think that that's part of the goal is to really help people understand the issue and get that out into um, public knowledge, because that's another place where I feel like people could get left behind. You know, yes, maybe NFTs will be a flash in the pan and, you know, two years from now, we won't even be talking about them. That's possible. But we can't approach that as though that's for sure going to happen because we've gotten bit in the ass by that too many times in the
0: past. Yeah, and that's for me right now in all artist and label conversations I'm having, NFTs are a topic that's undeniable at this point, Um, you know, and understanding them fully and whether they're for you or not for you, et cetera. And and honestly, I think just having the tools to make those decisions. Okay, next question. What's your favorite band that you're currently listening to?
1: Oh, my favorite band that I'm currently listening to is definitely Wet Leg. I feel like I'm, I'm weirdly like on a, you know, I'm usually the maverick who's over here listening to something that nobody else is listening to, but I feel like everyone's listening to Wet Leg right now, but I really love that record. <laughs> I totally love that band.
0: All right. So all right. Can't help it. <laughs> there we go. Um, last and final question, pizza or Chinese food? Oh,
1: Oh, and if it's in New York, it's worse. That's a worse toss up oh, yeah. because Oh yeah. This
0: is this is might be the hardest question I've asked you
1: all day. Yeah. I would say anywhere outside of New York other than San Francisco pizza, but in New York. Oh man. I don't know. There's so Chinese food and pizza in New York are like it's the gold standard. Okay, so we're we're 50-50 on it. It sounds like it sounds like we're undecided. And I can't I cannot
0: claim one over the other, it's not in the city. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Once again, everyone, this is Portia Sabin. Dr. Portia Sabin, um, who hosts the uh, the fantastic music business focused podcast the future of what and is also the president of the music business association joining us today on music industry 360 brought to you by symphonic i am randall foster chief creative officer at symphonic and thank you for tuning in we will see you and and you can listen to us next time